Michael McMullen. Welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast, where my guest this week is the 1987 Scottish Masters champion. It's Joe Johnson. <laughs> yes. First time ever you've not been described as 86 world champion, and of course we will talk about that. But you were a really good amateur, one of the best in the world, and then you turned pro just as the game was really starting to explode. So how would you describe your career up to the mid-80s? Yeah, well, I, I turned professional fairly late, really. I think I was either... 28, 29, so, which is pretty late, uh, and it took me quite a while to adjust to the professional game. You know, the, the amateur game, I played everybody, you know, Steve Davis, Jimmy White, you know, and so on. You know, so I grew up with those kind of players, but they all seemed to turn professional before me. There's a big myth around that before you won the World Championship, you had never won a match on television. Now, that's definitely not true. And you'd been, in fact, to the semi-final of the Mercantile Credit Classic. You were also in the final of another ranking event, although that wasn't on television. That's right. So you were steadily building, and by 1985, you were in the top 16. So moving into that elite bracket at that time, Joe, how much confidence did that give you? Well, it was massive, really, because uh, I qualified for the championship on several occasions prior to that, but never won a match. And I was always playing a top seed as a qualifier. So when I got into the top 16, I was sat there waiting for a qualifier, which is completely different, you know. And and I got my confidence by winning against the qualifier and then I'd won a match at the Crucible. Wow, what a change that was for me. So, yeah, and, and it seemed to fall for me because I was due to play Dennis Taylor in the last 16... And Dennis had walloped me at the Crucible the year before or the year before that, 10-1. So I wasn't looking forward to playing Dennis Taylor. And then all of a sudden, Mike Hallett beat him. And, you know, I always had great games with Mike Hallett. And he'd won some, I'd won some. So I felt a lot more comfortable playing Mike Hallett. And we'll talk about those matches in the later stages of Sheffield 86 in a moment. But let's speak first about your season leading up to that. So what sort of form had you been in? Well, to be honest, Michael, I can't really remember too much, you know, about... I I think I'd I'd got far in tournaments, you know, i.e. quarterfinals, semifinals. Um, But, uh, you know, it didn't look like I was going to win one at that stage. You know, but I'd, I'd won my early matches which gave you ranking points so I didn't particularly have a great season prior to it but I felt that there was something there there was something ready to come out if you like now when you got to the crucible as you say you were in the unusual unfamiliar position of being favorite going into matches against both Dave Martin and then Mike Hallett both of whom you beat different story then in the quarterfinals against Terry Griffiths who was firmly established as one of the best in the world yeah and you went to the very brink of defeat and then yeah. produced a burst of whatever yeah. it was, about three quarters of an hour. Yeah. That really changed your life. It changed my life completely. And, you know, it's not just down to me, that, by the way, because Terry Griffiths had a green at 12-9 up. He had a green. And if he pots the green, he's back into the reds again and it probably beats me 13-9. Uh, and, again... I'd always lost to Terry Griffiths. He, had, he was a great player, as you say. So yeah, I never had a good record against him. So when I, when I went in to play that match, I decided, because I, I was in the quarterfinals, I'd got money, I'd got ranking points, I decided to attack him, really attack him, open the Reds up at the very first opportunity. And I was always leading in that match into the final session. I was 9-7 up going into the final session. And he won five frames on the trot. And I thought, here we go again. Mm-hmm. You know, Griffiths, you know, he's got me. And then, he, as I say, he missed that green. 
And from that moment on, I played inspired snooker. Well, I was going to say, the way you played those last few frames, if someone did it now, we'd be yeah. saying, what a performance. But yeah, back yeah. in the 80s, it was absolutely amazing the way yeah. you performed. You got through 13-12. Yeah. And Terry, so yeah. gracious. He yeah. took you aside after the match That's and gave right. you some wonderful advice, didn't oh, he? Oh, he did, yeah. He's a great guy, yeah, without a doubt. Most of the guys are that play on the tour, but Terry especially. You know, I played him in the English amateur final. I don't know what he was doing playing in the English amateur final. but That's uh, a Welshman. <laughs> there, there you go. Yeah. But uh, he beat me heavily in the English amateur final, and he actually came up to me after. He saw how upset I was, and he came up to me afterwards and said, come on. We're going for that fish and chip sh- supper, me and the, the two wives that were there. That's, that's what kind of a guy he is. And when I beat him in the World Championship, he took me to one side and he said, look, you're going to get a lot of press. He said, and you know, they'll, they'll try and look for things that you've done. He said, try and get out of the way, you know, move away for a few weeks and get out of the way. I thought that was really nice of him. It was, and he was saying that on the basis that you were going to win it, and he was yeah. bigging up your chances. And that must yeah. have been great to hear that from someone who'd been there and done yeah. it himself seven years earlier, yeah. that he believed you were going to go on and finish the job. Well, I still had two matches to play. Yeah. I got, um, I think it was Tony Knowles in, in the semis. And then, of course, I didn't know it was going to be in the final because Davis was playing Thorburn. Uh, so, yeah, he, he probably had confidence in me. But even then, you know, going down to one table, I was going to attract attention, that's for sure, because I was a complete outsider. And you went in to play Tony Knowles in that semi-final. Someone who was very familiar with the one-table situation that's and getting right. to that stage of the championship. That's right. Great that you won, but remarkable that you won very comfortably in the end. Yeah, I mean, again, I, you know, I'd always had good matches with Tony you know I'd, I'd beaten him quite a few times he'd beaten me a few times so he held no fear for me if you like and and here I was now playing a best of I think it was 31 or 33 was, yeah. so so I was playing and, and I thought to myself well you know it gives me a chance to really get into my game you know and settle down because I always had, had a little bit of trouble with my eyes and settling down my eyes couldn't adjust to the 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 lighting of the cameras, you know, what the cameras, when you was playing on television. And it did take me quite a while to adjust each time I played. So the four-session nature of that match obviously suited Wonderful. you, and you were in the final. You had a nice little break, actually, before the final because you'd won so comfortably. And you're up against Steve Davis, who, as yeah. we said at that time, was not just by far the greatest snooker player in the world, but the most famous sportsman in Britain. So yeah. you were up against all of that. Yeah. I've spoken to you before about this, Joe, and you said yeah. your approach was to play down your own expectations and... Yeah always assume he was going to win the next frame, so that yeah. if you won the next frame, it was it's a, bonus. a bonus. And it worked yeah. so well. Yes, it did, yeah. And, and bearing in mind that I've got, at this stage, I've got more money than I'd ever seen in my life. You know, I could buy my house. If I lost in the final, I could buy my house. It was, it was wonderful. And I got all the ranking points. And, of course, I'd played Steve Davis as an amateur. Uh, and we'd, we'd played money matches as an amateur. And I'd always won. So I'd never played him as a professional up until that stage. So again, even though he was a formidable snooker player, make no mistake, and the best that had ever lived at that time, I didn't have that fear of him. So if I'd have lost, everybody expected me to lose. And if I won, wow, <laughs> what a day. And what a day it was for you, yeah. Joe, and you did win. And 
we all remember those images because we saw them so much. You had got yourself into one of those situations where it was long since won and you were having the victory lap potting the last few balls. And I remember yeah. you walking around, I think it was to play the pink, and yeah. you're shaking your head. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, wow, what a thing has happened yeah. to me here. Wonderful. Well, that was down to the, the crowd. I mean, it, it, there was a lot of Yorkshire people there, and it, it, it was thunderous applause after every ball I potted, and I just couldn't hold my emotions in. It was wonderful to hear it all, you know, and... Um, yeah, it, it, it was beginning to sink in as, as I, I was potting the last few balls, and it was amazing. And still thoroughly enjoying every moment of it. The crowd here at the Crucible are going mad for Bradford's Joe Johnson. The most remarkable world final... I've ever seen, and Joe Johnson defeats Steve Davis, 18 frames to 12, as the capacity crowd go completely mad. Tell me about the rest of that night. What was it like? And your wife was there. Yeah, and saw your yeah. friends. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the first time my wife had ever gone to a tournament. By the way, wow. she hadn't she hadn't been to a tournament before. Same that. as Neil Robertson's mum. First right. time she ever came was the World Final. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was special that she was there, win or lose. I mean, she probably didn't expect me to win, as you know, my mum and dad were there, and they didn't expect me to win. Nobody expected me to win. So it was great to have them there. And afterwards, you know, I made the mistake of saying that I was going to the club after, uh, the, you know, the, the interviews. And there was hundreds of people waiting for me. And this is at one o'clock in the morning. You know, it was amazing, the reception that I got. Tell me about the next day, Joe, the Tuesday. You're world champion, you're waking yeah. up, you've done it. What's all that like? Well, it, it was, it's hard to comprehend until you actually live it. But we didn't leave the club till, I think it was four o'clock, half past four. So, you know, we were very tired when we got home. So we went to bed and early next morning, eight o'clock-ish, we could hear this tapping on the window. And there, there were press boys on ladders knocking on the, the bedroom window, trying to get pictures, you know, through the, the curtains type of thing. So we got up, me and the wife... And we invited everybody into our small little house that we Start had. Start another party. Yeah, and well, it, it was just fantastic. We thought, you know, they're all there outside, and, you know, why shouldn't they come inside, have a cup of tea? And that's what we did. We got, made everybody a cup of tea, and we talked about the World Championship. It was wonderful. If someone wins the World Championship now, particularly for the first time, it's a yeah. massive story. Yeah. Anyone who wasn't around in the 80s could never yeah. grasp just what a big thing it was then. And if you became world champion then, it was like winning something like the X Factor or Strictly nowadays. Yeah. It really was that massive with the general public. I think even more so because you know, we, we only had three or four channels at that time. So people who started watching snooker couldn't put it down. They had to follow it through and watch it to the end. And like you say, I mean... The people that watched my final was in excess of 18 million. You know, so it's a lot of the nation that. Dennis Taylor was 18 and a half million the year before, I think. But mine, I talked to the BBC people and they, they said that if they'd taken into consideration the amount of people that was in the pubs watching mm. and working men's clubs, you know, it'd have been a, a lot more than 18 million. So, yeah, you're dead right that, you know, when players won the world championship back then 
the whole of England knew who you were. Whatever we did, you know, we we were well known and we were stopped by everybody. And you know, it's great for a time. And you know, after a, a short time, you know, if you're going out for a meal with friends and you can't enjoy that meal because it's continuous all night long that somebody's coming up to you, and I, I always felt obliged to sign the autographs and and things like that. So. Yeah, it got to be a little bit of a pain, but it was a good pain. You know, I enjoyed it, make no mistake. And you were a VIP guest at Wimbledon that summer, weren't you? No, I didn't go to Wimbledon. No, that was uh, a completely different story. Uh, I didn't go to Wimbledon. I went to Queen's. Oh, the Queen's Club yeah, tournament. Yeah, that's the yeah, one just before yeah. Wimbledon. No, right. that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Princess Diana invited me to that. Yeah, and Cliff Richard was sitting there as well at your yeah. request, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, she asked me who I'd like to... Uh, um, to invite, who she would like to invite, who I've I met type of thing. And I, I was a massive Cliff Richard fan. Mm. So, um, yeah, he, he came and uh, sat on my wife's dress, which she wasn't happy about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing I remember, actually, the start of the following season, you arrived in Dublin to play for a fairly small four-man event. Yeah, yeah. But there was a huge welcome for you at Dublin Airport. It was like the Beatles had come, and you were on the 9 o'clock news that night being interviewed. That's how big a star you'd become. Well, I didn't know that, but yeah, I, I, did I, see the, I did see the big brass band that um, um, welcomed me into the airport. It was unbelievable, it really was. The Irish people, you know, took to me as I was one of their own and had some great times in Ireland. Tell me about the following season then, Joe. You're being introduced everywhere as the reigning champion of the world, but it didn't go until the Crucible, which we'll yeah. talk about, obviously, yeah. any way like you would have hoped. No, uh, and, and the thing is that it's uh, back down to earth, isn't it? You know, I'm playing great players again who are out for my blood, and you know, they were up for it, and I seemed to struggle to get any kind of practice that year. You know, where, wherever I went, I was interrupted. You know, I'd never really got chance to play my four and five hours a day practice so um, that made a massive difference and of course the mantle of being world champion held its own uh, fears if you like. How does that come across what you're talking about there that other players are approaching playing you in a different way is it just in their body language the way they take on the match? No it's I think it's a, similar to the way that people uh, prepare to play Ronnie O'Sullivan for example every time Ronnie plays a match it seems that the person he's playing is playing superbly mm. you know he, he can never get away from it so you had all that pressure on you and obviously it made for a very difficult season and then coming up to the world championship I know you were a bit concerned about how you were going to defend your title but your manager at the time came up with a great idea didn't he and yeah, he yeah. advised you to just go away for a bit and he arranged yeah. somewhere for you yeah that's right yeah I mean he, he said don't play any snooker just have a complete rest a month before the World Championship and then, you know, five days before you start, you know, get the practice in. So, and that's exactly what I did. So I was looking forward to playing snooker again because it's in the blood, isn't it? So when you're playing every single day, you know, you, you get used to something. But when you've left it alone for a month, you really, really do want to play. And, that, and that's the, the position that I got to was itching to, to get practicing again. 
So you go out to the Crucible Arena on the opening day as defending champion and a very tough opponent for you, Eugene yeah. Hughes, who yeah. was a player who very nearly got to the top 16. He always yeah. did well in the team event with Ireland as well. He'd won it, in fact, with Ireland yeah. just before the World Championship that year. Yeah. The last thing you want after all the great well, memories of winning the championship is to go out first day, but it very yeah. nearly happened, didn't it? Well, well, let me tell you something about Eugene Hughes because the, the year previously, after winning the championship, I went out to Australia and I played Eugene every single day. You know, we were great mates, and I played him every day. We went to this club in Pitt Street, uh, forgotten the name of it now, but yeah, we, it was great, great conditions. And every day that we played, Eugene beat me. Without question, he beat me every single day. So I said to my wife, I said, Look, I said I'm not bothered who I play as a qualifier, as long as it's not Eugene. <laughs> and I got Eugene. Yeah. I got Eugene. Yeah, and it was, as you say, a terrific match, and um, I managed to win it ten nine, I think. Yeah, and then you got through your second round match as well, and then you're in the quarterfinals against Stephen Hendry, built a big lead. He came back at you, but yeah. you got through that. Yeah. Then you played Neil Folds, another young player who at yeah. the time was challenging Steve to be the best in the world, yeah. and you beat him comfortably. Yeah. What does that do for your confidence that you have seen off these two rising stars in consecutive yeah. rounds? Well, St- Stephen Hendry was something special. As you say, I had a great lead. I think I won the first session 7-1 mm-hmm. and the first frame of the nighttime session, so I made one up, and he's won that next session. He won the next seven frames, so he won that session 7-1. That's how good he was, you know. He, he's taking the world champion apart. He's he's only a kid, you know. It's just it was just so unheard of for somebody so young to play so well, but we knew how good he was, and I managed to beat him in the deciding frame, you know. So um, that was a great win. And after beating Stephen in the semi-finals again, one table set up, I was prepared for anything, anybody, you know. I was just itching to go. Loved it. Yeah, and you beat Neil quite comfortably in the end, as I say, after he'd had that wonderful season. And unbelievably, you're back in the final against Steve Davis. And you actually went pretty close to doing it all again, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I don't think I was as prepared the second year. I was a little bit more nervous, if you like, playing Steve in the final. Uh, I think he was leading something like 14... 10, 14, 11, got it back to 14, 13. And I remember the shot that I played that if I'd have got the shot, it, it would probably have been 14 all, but I missed the shot, the reds opened up and he, he got that two-frame cushion and um, you know, went on to win from there. Yeah, he won 18-14, but yep. the fact remains, Joe, yeah. people always say about first-time champions at the Crucible never defend the title yeah. successfully the following year. Mm. You remain the man who got closer than anybody else. That's yeah. something to be proud of. It, it is, actually. Yeah, you're dead right, and uh, I am proud of that fact. And um, you know, All the great players have had their chance to retain the title, and uh, there's no really great ones left that's not won the title. So I think it might remain like that for quite a few years. I don't think it'll go on indefinitely, but, you know, for a few years, maybe. Steve Davis, 78. He breaks down at 78. But Joe Johnson, the defending champion, is the first to come out and congratulate Steve Davis. Let's come to the quick fire round now, Joe. Favourite song? Favourite song, wow. I think it's got to be something uh, that Gerard Kenny came on to This Is Your Life oh, as yeah. a final yeah. guest. And he, he sang a song that kept me going 
much of the time through my early career, and it's called I Made It Through the Rain. You know, when troubles were, were at the, the, the hardest, you know, that was a song that I probably held on to, you know, I'm going to make it, you know, I made it through the rain. You know, you've got to keep yourself perspective, if you like. I remember watching that. You joined in with him. He I did. came on and played <laughs> it and you got to join in. I did, what yeah. A thrill I did, that yeah. Must have been. I'm not sure if he enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> Favourite movie? Yeah. No, then it's got to be The Wizard of Oz. Love it. I love it. It's, you know, I've watched it so many times with having so many children. Yeah. I've done it. And now with the grandchildren as well, I've sat down and watched it with them. So, yeah, it's, it's a movie that's going to live forever, forever, that one. Best place you've ever been to on holiday? I think I've got to say Australia. You know, I, I didn't really go on holiday until I, me and Tony Knowles got knocked out early. And we decided to drive up the uh, coast road to Cairns from Brisbane, which took us a week. And we saw some amazing places, met some beautiful people as well. So, yeah, that's probably the best. The best you ever played in a match? That would probably be against Terry Griffiths when I was 12-9 down. I made two centuries and another couple of decent breaks. That was probably the best. I think I won four frames in less than an hour. And your all-time favourite TV show? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. Probably 24. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. yeah Kiefer Sutherland, he was That's right, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was so exciting when it came out at the time. And it was all done in 24 hours. Speaking of TV then, as we move on, Joe, there was a darkly comic incident some years later, wasn't there, when you sat down with some friends to watch the video of the World Final and yeah. got a nasty surprise. <laughs> I did, yeah, you did, right. Yeah, we, it's, somebody came round to say, and, and said, oh, Joe, you've got the, the final on video. I said, yeah, of course. Uh, well, can we watch it? So I got it out, put it in the video player, and what came out? He-Man of the Universe. My kids had taped over it. <laughs> Since then, the BBC have sent me it again, I've got to add. But, yeah, it was a, a surprise at the time. Absolutely. Let's talk then about your career after those two world finals. As I say, yeah. you won the Scottish Masters later that year, which was a yep. tough event to win. Yeah, you got yeah. to the UK semi-final soon after that, and yep. you were still in the top 16 for another couple of years. So how would you sum up your career post those two world finals? Yeah, well, I started to lose my eyesight, you know, in, when I was... Uh, 36 I believe you know so I, I defending uh, I got to the final the year after and the year after that I needed glasses so you know I went on to glasses and that was a, just a downward slide for me from then on you know it was it was it was going to be tough you know as, as I say I, you know I, I turned professional too late and lost my near vision too soon and it wasn't just problems with your eyesight, was it? You had big, big health problems for years after. Yeah, yeah. I had a heart bypass um, back in 2000. Um, and um, I had a few heart attacks before that, prior to that. Uh, so it's, it's, what, it's what happens to when you just lose control of uh, drinking, smoking at the time. You know, since then I've, I've stopped for nearly 20 years now smoking. And I don't drink a lot anymore. And that's probably why I'm still here. And looking great at the age of 70, I might yeah, add. Yeah, yeah. You stopped playing about 20 years ago on the tour, but yeah. then you found another lease of life yeah. with the TV work that you've been doing for some time. And I guess, I know you're someone who's always appreciated what life has given him. You must yes. look at that and think, that's because of yeah. what happened those two weeks in 86 that I get those opportunities. I put it down to 
Griffiths missing the green. <laughs> if he hasn't missed the green, yeah. I probably wouldn't have been working for Eurosport. And uh, they have been very good to me, very loyal to me. And we've got a great team together with Jimmy White and Ronnie O'Sullivan, Neil Folds and Ali McManus. Uh, you know, we've got two great um, uh, co-commentators in Philip Studd and David Endon. It's a fantastic team. So, yeah, I'm, I'm proud and privileged, you know, to be commentating for Eurosport. I mean, I think I've been doing it 15, 16 years. 37 years on from yeah. you winning the World Championship and we're talking about it again. You've done yeah. this interview in yeah. one form or another a million yeah. times, but I sense it's something you would just happily talk about absolutely. forever. And why not? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I love to have these memories. And, you know, I'm, I feel fortunate that people remind me about it most days. You know, I bump into somebody and they'll, they'll, they'll mention it. I mean, it's amazing how many people know so much about me. You know, and, and it's so long ago. You know, they'll, they'll tell me that I, I got to the final the year after. They'll tell me who I beat, you know, and things like that. The great fans, you know, the snooker fans are very knowledgeable, I think. And do you ever look back on it all? Because I'm sure, as you say, you've a reason to think about it a lot because people talk about it. But do you look back and think, wow, that really happened? And yeah. I beat all those great players. Yeah. And for those couple of weeks, I was the best player around. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I feel blessed all the time. There's no, no mistake in that. You know, I, I've had a great career. Not as great as some of the players, but, you know, I'm not greedy. I, I, I like what I've done and I've enjoyed myself, made some great friends. And the snooker players are probably the, the, the nicest people you could ever wish to meet. I don't know a bad one. Well, we can certainly count you among that, Joe. And for <laughs> those of us who were growing up yeah. in the 80s, we yeah. all remember that night yeah. you beat Steve Davis and what a big star you were. And how well kind. you handled it all at the time. And it's been great sharing those memories with you it's on the World Snooker Tour you. podcast. Thanks, Thanks Michael. Thank you. Next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast, it'll be the week which marks the 40th anniversary of the Crucible's first ever 147. So our guest can only be the man who made it, Cliff Thorburn. I had a dream about two months before that that I actually made the 147 in the World Championship. I'm not really that big on dreams, but uh, you know I've had a few good ones that came true. But I just had a dream, and the shot was that I had a sort of, you know, the cue ball was high on the black, if people can sort of you know sense what I'm talking about here. And then I cut the black in, uh, the first black, and then the cue ball hit the, hit the black ball cushion, jumped up in the air and went right in the middle of the reds and spread them all because when I played my first shot, the reds, because of a couple of safety shots with Terry, the reds were spread all over the place. And, uh, and of course, you know, I fluked the first ball and I felt, I felt terrible about that for about half a second. <laughs> And then, you know, and then off I went. But I was, I was calm at the, at the end of that when I was shooting the black. I, I just wanted to make sure that the, that the black never even touched the jaws of the pocket. And it went absolutely straight in. So that, you know, I felt that confident about it. And I just felt terrific. And then, uh, and I saw big uh, Bill Werbenick's head peeking around the corner there. And, uh, yeah, the celebration after was, uh, was terrific. So that's coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast. And don't forget our bonus content, The 147, rounding up the week's snooker headlines in 147 seconds, out every Tuesday and available to download at wst.tv. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.